beautifully sung. I told him he had the gift of exhortation. He has exhorted us on Jesus as the one, the central one, the truth, the way, the life. We find this truth particularly in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And last week I read the last verses of the Gospel of Mark, as far as the textual critics say, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 16. And today I'm reading the first three verses of the book of Acts. The Acts, somebody said, of the apostles. Someone else said, no, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It is what God does in the aftermath of the empty tomb. I'm going to read three verses here, and I'm t preaching on the theme of being transformed now. We went through the tested series, Jesus on the way to the cross. We went uh, through the tangled series, the seven deadly sins, and now it is the transformed series of messages from the Resurrection Day to Pentecost. And here's what happens in the first part of the book of Acts. Luke, the author says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. What did he speak about? The kingdom of God. If you look in your concordance, you'll discover that Jesus is the one who talks about the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are full of teaching on the kingdom of God. In Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he had 40 days to talk to his disciples, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Now, I'm talking to you about being transformed, and I want to present to you from the text three realities about the kingdom of God that change the way you live in the world. They change the fundamental perspective you have about life, relationships, God, and the future. That's why Jesus is talking to them about the kingdom of God. I believe that it that the kingdom teaching transforms a human being. And I've believed this for a long time. I preached it when I was a very young man without even thinking that somebody might object till one day down at New Orleans Mission, I was preaching away and somebody stood up in the middle of the sermon after I said, God can change a man. And he said, nobody can change a man. It depends on what stars you're born under. People don't change. And he walked out mumbling and grumbling and hollering at the crowd all the way to the back door. And I preached to him all the way to the door about how Jesus can really dramatically change a human being. And I believe it, don't you? 
I believe the teaching of the kingdom is transformational. It changes the trajectory of a life. Now, me and my granddaughters and Brady were in the Highlander yesterday, and we were driving along, and we had the soundtrack for Frozen going at the highest decibel that I could endure it. They were singing at the top of their lungs, and they know just about every word in the movie Frozen. And we got to the song Fixer Upper. I really like Fixer Upper. You know, he's a fixer upper. But you know what can fix a fixer upper up? Just a little bit of love. That's how the song goes. And it's a delightful song. It has lots of good truth in it, too. But there's one thing about the song that I must object to. And when I heard it the first time, I said, nope, I don't believe it. Because the songwriters choose to put in there this phrase. We don't mean you can change, man, because people don't really change. Now, the idea that people don't really change is a fairly common notion in the family of man. There are some who believe it theologically. There are some who believe it psychologically, that there is a determinism in the world, that it is natural or biological or sociological, and you just are who you are, and you cannot change. The man who objected at the mission believed it astrologically, that if you are a Pisces, that's who you are, and you cannot change, and it depends what stars you are born under, okay? And some people parse their determinism to make it palatable to the rest of us. I just don't believe it, and I don't believe it fits with the Bible and the doctrine of God's salvation, justification, new birth, and redemption. If any man is in Christ, he's what? a new creation. All things pass away. All things are become new. You hang on to this because not only is this teaching wrong, it's sad. And it's hopeless. There's something about believing that people cannot change that steals your future because some people really need to change and they know it down deep inside and some people tolerate terrible wickedness in their life that is self-destructive and destructive of everything good in their life and they do so because they tell themselves people can't change. Transformation is about fundamental change. And Jesus is communicating this fundamental change to his disciples. The empty tomb, you see, was great, startling, amazing, but it was not enough. You'll recall that the women went from that tomb bewildered and afraid. They saw that it was empty. They saw the man dressed in white, and they left there. And, the, and Mark says they didn't tell anybody anything till finally they let the word out. 
See, the empty tomb is powerful, but it's not enough. And so Jesus wanted to present himself because the first fundamental reality that changes the world is this. I am a subject of the king. I am a servant of the king. There's a king. That's why we call it the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he wants us to understand who he really is, not who we think he is or thought he might be, a good moral teacher, maybe a moralist, perhaps a prophet. Jesus wants us to know who he really is. And so he comes to his disciples who are going to carry the word all over the world and he presents himself. And it's a simple Greek word, a compound of para, which means beside, and histemi, which means to put. And he put himself beside the disciples in his resurrected body. That's what he did. He presented himself to them. And Luke, the, apostle, the, the writer of the gospel, says that he presented many convincing proofs that he was alive. In the old Bible, the King James Version translated that infallible proofs that he was alive. Convincing arguments. Jesus wanted every one of those apostles convinced that he was alive. He wanted them to know it deep inside because he was the king and they were part of the kingdom and being a subject of the king is a transformational truth in our world and so the scripture says that he invited them to take a good look at him say it's a good thing to take a good look at Jesus He's the most winsome, astonishing figure in all of human history. Nobody ever talked like this. The words, the metaphors, and the stories of the Lord Jesus have worked their way into the common vernacular of a hundred languages. And so when you talk about the Good Samaritan or the lost sheep or the lost coin, you are quoting Jesus of Nazareth. People don't even know it. There was nobody like him. And when you read about him and how he interacts with people, it's astonishing. He just wins your heart. He went to these apostles because he wanted them to take a good look at him. In John 20, 20, he showed them his hands and his feet. He wanted them to have 20-20 vision. So he showed them his hands and his feet. He wanted them to see the world and reality the way it really was. And he wanted them to see the scars where they drove in the nails in his hands and feet so they would know I'm not a ghost, I'm not an illusion, I'm not a mass hypnosis. I am Jesus of Nazareth that you buried in the tomb. And I'm alive forevermore. The disciples were overjoyed, the scripture says, when they saw 
the Lord. Luke records there were two disciples going on the road to Emmaus. They were going away and talking about all the things that had happened in Jerusalem. Jesus joined them and he began to talk to them. And uh, he said, who is this Jesus you're talking about? And they said, you've never heard about the things that are going on. Jesus was mighty in word and in deed. I quote that a lot. In front of God and all the people. And they had this conversation with him and then they stopped and they invited him to have him in to have a meal and he took the bread and broke it and the scripture says he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I think it's probably because they were looking at his face, they were astonished, they were mesmerized by what this stranger was saying and they didn't even look at his hands till he broke the bread at the table. And I'll bet you, too, that Jesus had this unique manner of being at the head of the table, like my dad did. And he sat down at the head of the table, and all of a sudden they realized, this is Jesus breaking this bread. He wants them to know. He wants them to believe. He wants them to see. The Apostle Paul chronicles this in one of the oldest books in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, this is probably the earliest written summation of the gospel that he gives, that Christ was buried, killed, crucified for our sins, buried and raised the third day according to the scriptures. Here he recounts all these different people who saw the risen Christ, including 500 people who saw him at once. And he says in his letter, he says, you know, some of these folks are still alive to this day, although others have passed on or fallen asleep. Jesus wanted them to know. He wanted them to take a look. They were subjects of the king, and the king was Jesus himself that's why the transition happened from the Gospels to the letters, the book of Acts and the preaching of the apostles. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom and the apostles came preaching the king, Jesus. Thomas didn't want to believe. Thomas had the same attitude that many people do. He said, I've got to see the marks in his hands and the spear thrust in his side. I'm not going to believe it. And Jesus appeared to Thomas Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe, Jesus said to him. And Thomas made the confession that Jesus wanted him to make. This is the reality that changes everything, that changes all life. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It's the word kurios. It's master. And Thomas was seeing himself as the subject of the king. He was making the confession. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, you'll be transformed, you'll be rescued, you'll be living a new life. Why are you so troubled, Jesus said to his disciples, why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. That's Luke, the end of Luke's gospel. He says, come on now. I want you to see. Take a good look at me. I want you to believe. It's me. When Thomas said, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Can you receive the blessing? 
Can you receive the blessing? Thomas had to see, okay? But blessed are those like you and me, though we have not seen the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus, we have believed. There's a special blessing, a special grace from God for people in this room who have believed on the testimony of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus himself. A special blessing to us because we understand that the presence of God in the world is a spiritual reality. These disciples are going to have to watch the body of Jesus go up into heaven for them to finally get that he is with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit every day that we live, everywhere that we are, God is with us. His name really is Emmanuel. And so the special blessing for us is that we know the presence of Christ in a real and personal way. Every day that we live, we have believed, even though we have not seen. So, so important, this viewpoint, this reality, that we are subjects of the king. Now, do you know this reality is embedded even in the natural order? So that when you look at a vast world and you see the space that God has made in the galaxies that are out there and all the wonder of the universe, the mighty hand of creation, God's fingerprints everywhere, and you feel so small sometimes, it's because you realize you are subject of the king. You are servant, and there is one who is greater than you, and he is Lord and master. Jesus is communicating this in a very specific way intimate way he's saying to them take a look at my hands take a look at my feet don't be faithless start believing this is me I have conquered death I am alive second reality we are citizens of heaven Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. Now, this is a wonderful truth that we ought to embrace. It is life-changing the kingdom of God is my eternal reality. When I say Jesus is Lord in the here and now, that confession is good for all time and all places. Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords here and forevermore. My citizenship is in heaven. The body of Jesus is a glorious body. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. God's already done something wonderful for you. He's made you fit for heaven spiritually. He's enrolled you in his family. He's adopted you and given all, you all legal rights in the family of God. You are already spiritually his now and forevermore and nothing will take you out of the Father's hand, all right? You belong to him, you are his, that's settled, okay? That's your citizenship in heaven 
and you already have that spiritual reality, you can walk around the planet knowing my Father is God. I am his son or his daughter. That's who I am. I don't need other people to tell me I'm important. I don't have to do something grand to establish my value. I am of great and inestimable value to the Father in heaven because he loves me, he has saved me, and he has made me part of his family. You derive your self-image and your self-worth from the Father who has loved you. This is how you operate on the planet. You are a subject of the King, and you are a citizen of heaven. But God's not through with the transformation he's bringing about in you. He's got more work to do in you. This body you're in is mortal, and it is corruptible. You realize that every time you bump yourself and start to bleed or you wake up with aches and pains. The body starts wearing out, and the older it gets, the more aches and pains you have, and that's just the reality of life. You see, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So, God's got a transformation coming for you. Your loved ones who have died in Christ... I don't, I'm not grieving for my dad anymore. I'm so glad he's in heaven. He was hurting here. His heart was failing him. His body was letting him down. He was living in pain. I'm glad he's got a body like unto the Lord's glorious body. This is good news. God's going to change this body in the resurrection in a blink of an eye, if we are here till he comes, into a glorious body like the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, that body was wonderful in that Paul says it was glorious. So when Jesus said, look at my hands and, and feet, be not faithless but believing, he wanted his disciples to understand that this is the same Jesus, but it's a glorious body that is if the body the father has given him it is transformed and it is fit for heaven he's got a body that he can live in heaven with that old body the bone and blood couldn't go but this new body can and you're going to get that body too that's how we're going to be in heaven scripture talks about heaven here that jesus is going to go up to heaven it says and he came from heaven, the scripture says. I know there are stories about heaven. Colby Burpo, the four-year-old, has told the story. Heaven is for real. Heaven is for real, and people are watching it. And I'm glad they are, because heaven is for real. And a four-year-old doesn't have to tell me, though, that heaven is for real. I heard that right from Jesus, you know, from the one who came from heaven, went back to heaven. He says, heaven is for real. I got a place for you in the Father's house. I got a place for you at the Father's table. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to take you, receive you to myself, because I want you to be with me where I am. He went up to heaven. One day, that's where we're going. All right? 90 minutes in heaven. That's good for Don Piper. I'm glad he told the story. It's an amazing thing. But I don't have to have Don Piper tell me that heaven is for real, because I know it. Jesus said it was so. R.G. Lee, 
preceded me in this pastoral ministry. Maybe you didn't know that. Payday someday, Bellevue Baptist Church, Memphis, Tennessee. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church, New Orleans. He died as an old man. And they say when he died, he said, I see heaven. And my sermons never did it justice. Then he told his daughter, I see mother. And I see Jesus. This is the deathbed of that pastor. Do you know how many stories like that a pastor like me hears in 40 years of preaching? I remember a fellow, Leon Watson, who came to life at a late age, lived such a rough life. He was dying of cancer just months after he'd received Jesus and we baptized him. I went to see him in the hospital and Leon looked at me and he said, Pastor, Jesus stood at the foot of my bed all night long. Every time I woke up, every time I opened my eyes, I saw Jesus at the foot of my bed. He said, Preacher, do you believe that? Yeah. I believe he saw Jesus at the foot of his bed. I had a man who had heart surgery, and they say he died on the table. After it was all over, he told me, I watched the heart surgery from above out of my body. I don't know how these things happen, all right? But whether it's him or Leon Watson or Don Piper or little Colby, I don't really need anybody else to tell me heaven is for real now that Jesus has told me so. It's in the book. And he's preparing me for this place where I will live eternally with him. And I can't take this mortal, corruptible body, so God's going to give me a body like unto the body that Jesus showed those disciples when he was raised from the dead. That's the kind of body. That's what I understand. It's a spiritual body. It doesn't have the same boundaries that this body has. It is a body suitable for heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm going to live there forever with my Lord. And I'm going to have a body fit for that wonderful place. I like visions about heaven. In fact, the book of Revelation is a great big vision that John saw. Things that were, things that are, and things that are to come. And his vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from God, adorned as a bride for her husband, is a beautiful vision. It is in this place, he said, where there will be no more tears, sorrow, pain, or death. The former things are passed away. It's a wonderful vision. One day we're going to see it. Face to face, Paul said, now we see through a glass, darkly, there's lots of things we don't know about heaven in the future. But then, face to face, Fanny Crosby was blind, but she wrote the song, face to face, with Christ my Savior, face to face, what will it be? Face to face, when I behold him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. We are subjects of the king. That's transformational. We are citizens of heaven. That's transformational. And we are carriers of the crucified life. 
what Jesus is doing is really seeking to transform the way we think about the world, progress, what's up and what's down. He's going to teach us how the last will be first and the first will be last. He's going to teach us if you want to be the greatest of all, then be the greatest servant. He's going to show us how things are really inside out from what we thought they were. He's going to make us carriers of the crucified life. On this planet, while we walk around, we carry about in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be revealed in us. See, it's the world's way that you put somebody down. You take them down. You're victor over them. You win the contest. You win the award. You're stronger. You're smarter. You're bigger. You're faster. And you take that person down. When there's a conflict, you put them down. If there's a problem, you put them down. You pin them to the mat. You take them down to the ground. Just like Cain took Abel down to the ground. You lay him down. And that's what it means to be a victor. That's what it means to be on top. That's how you do the best in life is you put the other guy down and you end up first. You're on the top. You're on the top of the hill. That's the winner. Jesus is going to turn that on his head. All right? Somebody's going down. But it startles and amazes the world. When a man lays his life down instead of taking somebody else down. See, it's the laying down of your life which is the startling evidence of Christ living in you. Jesus taught you this. He said, whoever seeks to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever hangs on to his life is going to lose it, but whoever gives it away is going to find it. If you can somehow bury that seed in the ground and die to yourself, take up your cross, die to yourself every day, follow me. If you can somehow do that, then life's going to spring forth from that place. You are carriers of this crucified life as subjects of the king and citizens of heaven. And it explodes the preconceptions of people who see the world another way. They think it's dog eat dog. They think it's the powerful that rule. And what Jesus is teaching us as he lays down his life is that this is the will and purpose of God. This is the expression of love. This is God laying down his life for you in order that you might take it up again. It's a wonderful thing. It's the reverse of what we thought. But in its most startling context, as you live it out with your sisters and your brothers and the people at work and the people in school, as you actually practice this kind of submission and humility, as you lay down your life for love of God and love of your neighbor, it startles those who observe you. It challenges their notion of how things really are. 
and it introduces the reality of the kingdom of God to the people that you know. And the more startling the surrender of your life, the more powerful the revelation of this truth. It is in giving your life away in love for God and others that you really, really live. I was at the Zurich on Friday watching the 18th hole, which is almost 600 yards long. You've got to think about that. You non-golfers, stay with me, all right? The guy hit the ball off the tee, and it went 350 yards. Landed in the fairway. That amazed me. Now, you've got to be careful with that second shot. Because on the 18th hole, there's nothing but water all the right side. And it gets narrower and narrower and more full of sand pits and little hills and places to get lost. Not only do they have the water on the right side, but they have probably the longest sand bunker anywhere in any PGA golf course on the right side. So if you don't get in the water, you'll probably get in the sand. Not only that, but lots of times when you go over to get the sand... There are alligators laying in the sand. So you got water, you got sand, you got alligators. And you think it's impossible. And I watched one guy hit his second shot and plunk right in the water. I thought, it's lucky, man. You don't have to fight the alligators. I saw two guys fighting an alligator in Slidell yesterday. They were right beside the road. The alligator was snapping at them, and they were poking at him, trying to get him in a pickup truck. I don't know how that turned out, all right? This guy hit his second shot and went in a sand bunker right uh, to the left of the green. That amazed me. I mean, he knocked the thing that far. But he's still probably 50 yards from the hole. And he gets out his sand wedge, and I'm sitting there watching him. He swings that thing, popped it up on the green, rolled straight in in the hole, made an eagle. Yeah. I still can't believe that. I'm still trying to process how he did that. <laughs> 600 yards, and he put his ball in the hole in three hits. People say, you know, there's just no way to do it. There's too many alligators, too much sand, too much water. You're going to mess up. And God grants us through his grace, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, to be who he's called us to be no matter what the obstacles are. He says, look, I'm going to do something amazing through you. Something wonderful through you. You're going to be a transformational force in your world, in your family, in your neighborhood, with your friends. I want to do this in you. And this is what it depends on. You being a subject of the king. Living as a citizen of heaven. Being a carrier of the crucified life. Bow with me, please. God, thank you that you sent Jesus to help us understand how things really are. Lord, teach us again this truth right here, right now. I pray for the one who's in the struggle of a life, a looming decision in front of them. Lord, that you might grant that sister or brother the ability to understand what laying down your life means 
in the context of their circumstances. God, help us so represent you so well, so faithfully, so truly that people will be amazed and startled at the way we understand the world, the difference it makes, and the power of love. God, thank you for sending Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Help us respond to the good news of his grace as we should even today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.